Welcome to this special episode of Workforce Rx. Vontone Quinlevin, CEO of Futuro Health and host of the show, is also author of the best-selling book, Workforce Rx, Agile and Inclusive Strategies for Employers, Educators, and Workers in Unsettled Times. In this episode, Vaughn welcomes leading workforce and economic development experts to discuss the strategies and insights from chapters 9 and 10 that resonated most with them. Check out their lively discussion about freeing and sharing data within an organization to guide improvements, building infrastructure to help gig workers thrive, the role of labor unions in scaling solutions to workforce challenges, adopting a shared ownership model to overcome inequality in income and assets, and much more from this powerful new playbook for the future of work. Joining Vaughn are Omid Porzinjani, Superintendent and President of San Joaquin Delta College, Anthony Dalton, Vice President and Chief Data Scientist at Futuro Health, Kathy Booth, Project Director at WestEd, Anne Volk, Senior Director at Alvarez and Marsal, Sarah Skaversky, Research Director at the Institute for the Future, Dave Regan, President of SEIU UHW, Howard Brodsky, CEO of CCA Global, and Lenny Mendoza, former Chief Economic and Business Advisor for the State of California. And now, here's Vaughn. I am just so delighted to have the company of longtime colleagues as panelists today in this moment where we're launching my new book, Workforce Rx. Some folks ask me, why have I written this book and why this book now? And the answer is the numbers. The pandemic has really wreaked havoc on our labor market, which already was in turmoil beforehand. You know, workers can't find jobs. Employers can't find workers. Really, we need our nation to have all our engines revving to connect people with the right skills for the right jobs, connecting people with the right skills for the right jobs. And there's no more perfect time to get these workforce development strategies and these proven playbooks out since we do not need to start from scratch and we can be working together in collaborative ways to build upon each other's good works. This is a moment in time when I'll borrow a phrase from my uh, former colleagues where you don't want to post and pray that there's a talent pool on the other end. And so there are many, many strategies that are proven that can be employed in order to ensure that you have the talent pool when you make that job posting. The book is structured in a set of challenges and solutions. So you have 10 chapters presenting challenges and then solutions to those challenges. I'm very proud, and I think the the crowd that is uh, here to join me on chapter nine, uh, I've actually made data really interesting because it's all about alignment of monies, metrics, and data to get the policy intent uh, realized for the workers and the students. And there's a lot of money flowing right now to the American Recovery Act, as well as other pots of money, and they don't actually flow in the way and result in the outcomes that we all want unless we have some intentionalities and redesign the monies, the metrics, and the data so that they're in alignment. I'm looking forward to having the guest speakers on chapter nine uh, speak more about that. And then chapter 10, getting ahead of the gig. so important to be thinking about the future of work. Our nation is creating jobs 
unfortunately, they're jobs without assets like healthcare and retirement. So what are the social and human infrastructure that is missing for workers in order to pair this economy so that we could stabilize households? You'll hear concepts like worker co-ops and community subsidized training. These are types of experiments that we need. And once we understand these experiments and what work, we can then uh, begin to scale them in bigger ways. So with that, let me tee up. Uh, my very distinguished list of friends and longtime colleagues. And I have asked them to do first a, a fun fact, which is, uh, you know, what keyword would you use to find this book, whether it's on Amazon or on um, Barnes and Noble or, or Google, and then followed by the answer to this following question, which is what insight, story, or strategy resonated most with you and why? What insight, story, or strategy resonated the most with you and why? All right, so let me introduce a set of colleagues for chapter nine, Omid Porzanzani, back when he was with Golden West uh, College, took a big risk and brought his knowledge from the field in the community college up to the state chancellor's office. And for two years, commuted from Orange County in Southern California to Sacramento in order to help the system design tools that would result in the outcomes that we all desired. Um, Anthony Dalton, brilliant, a uh, data scientist and leader who uh, was a part of a big effort with Kathy Booth at Westhead uh, to design the launch board, which was a very, very heavy lift in order to bring alignment to data and bring data tools to the system. He's now with Futuro Health, which we were so thankful for. And in the book, you'll see him discuss as part of the, the critical team that created the launch board. And part of that team uh, was led by Kathy Booth, Kathy has a real talent for being able to bring diverse stakeholders to come together and talk about data and translate data into an understandable uh, language. And Anne Volk, who is with Alvarez and Marcel, and she is uh, gifted in being able to understand technology infrastructure and brought a lot of insights to the chancellor's office when we were thinking through our digital infrastructure. Uh, rounding them out will be chapter 10. Uh, we have Sarah Scurvy uh, with the Institute for the Future, and you see Institute Future mentioned several times in the book as having catalyzed a set of new, new thoughts and creative thoughts um, as I went along in my journey, and I wanted to thank Sarah for being a part of that. Dave Reagan uh, of SEIUHW, a union of 100,000 uh, workers. Um, Dave, you had the uh, prescience to be able to think through what the role of the union is in growing the next generation of healthcare workers. You have been thinking about what are the structures that are needed to um, stabilize uh, workers. So thank you for that. Howard Broski, we met as I started to explore uh, workers co-op and what are those structures and why do they work so well in many countries and what can they do in, in the United States? And Lenny Mendoza. Uh, Lenny is probably three degrees of separation from I think half the people in, in the country. He uh, served with the Governor Newsom team as chief economic and business advisor and was with McKinsey before that. But uh, I wanted to do a specific call out that he uh, was instrumental in creating the Future Work Commission, which really looked at a, a whole range of these issues uh, for the state of California. So with that, let me tee up uh, Omid. Why don't you uh, get us started? Well, good morning, everyone. And um, 
Vaughn, you said that I took a big risk in coming to the chancellor's office. I say that I did and I saw the kind of work you could do and your, your desire to do what's right for the system. And that, so it was absolutely a pleasure and a, like a gift. I was so happy that you had invited me to come and work with you at the chancellor's office. It's great to be among this group, fantastic group. I've had such a pleasure working with people like Anthony and Anne and, and uh, Kathy and of course Vaughn. But a few sort of lessons learned from this. One, one big key thing I think that resonates with me that the whole notion of moving the needle, having gauges, I just don't know how you could operate any organization. You couldn't even drive a car without having a speedometer or a, or a gas gauge. So you have to have these gauges that are functional, accurate, right? Without, without a, a speedometer, like every moment, you don't know if you're gonna get pulled over, or you're gonna get honked at because you're going too slow. So I think the first thing for us, which was really important was freeing the data. That was really important. People like Rock Fortenhauer and myself started talking with Vaughn about how critical it was to release the data to the field. The data was moving in, in one direction and we needed the data free. And I think this would be critical in any organization that wants to build dashboards that are meaningful and that can inform decision-making. So freeing the data is a constant thing. I think there are those people who believe that data is like gold, they wanna protect it, they, don't, they wanna limit access to it. And we're constantly fighting that, that data needs to be released so that people can see how the institution is performing. Um, the, the other thing for us was to uh, build the data in such a way that was useful for the field. And I think this is what Kathy, like Vaughn was saying, was, was incredible in, in bringing the field together, listening to them, presenting stuff, and then coming back and working with Anthony to refine and constantly refine the system. And I think this, again, is critical in any organization that wants to build a data infrastructure that's meaningful, is that constant uh, evolution and refinement to the data. Um, and then it was important for us to connect as much data as we could so we can see patterns. You think about our business, about students, is about getting students um, from you know when they apply or when we recruit all the way to when they actually get jobs. And it was important for us to see that whole uh, continuum along the student's uh, educational journey and employment journey. So connecting them with jobs was really important seeing that data for us. I wanna state something that I think Vaughn mentioned in our, in our book, you know, community college system of California, largest education system, 2.1 million students, for us, I think it was, even if through this work, we could make a 1% difference, 1% difference in the kind of people that come to us, get educated and get a job. And if we could get a 1% difference in the number of people who could get a better job and a standard of living wage, move from low income to middle income, that would be like 20,000 people. 20,000 people is, is a significant number of people that we could impact. So any percent that we could move that uh, system was important to us. Um, but there was a lot of par parts to this, but I think probably the most important thing to me was the commitment from Vaughn. First of all, her, her vision to see the importance of data in bringing about change to an institution organization this massive in scale, and then funding it and sticking with it. And uh, so that, that's definitely a, a key to this work. And I think also, I can't thank Anthony and, and Kathy enough. I mean, 
deepen with this work for, gosh, uh, at least a decade that I know and, and beyond, but, but certainly with the California Community Colleges, bringing that work and continuously improving it, working with the field, building trust and relationship with the field to, to bring this, what we have today to reality, these gauges that are helping us see the performance of the system. In, in something like the California Community College system, bureaucracy is monstrous, if you can imagine. And I think the, the work that Anne both did in, in helping to sort of work through the logistics and the contracts and the outcomes of this work and refining that work for us was critical. So kudos to Vaughn, I think, for bringing the team together that's made this happen. And I think all of those ingredients that I talked about and Vaughn talks about in her work is critical to making something like this happen in, in truly any organization. So Vaughn, thank you for inviting me and I'll, and I'll uh, mute now, thank you. Well, Omid, you can't see me smile, but I, I am smiling big because, you know, you have said some of the key phrases in my book, like move the needle, uh, free the data. Uh, I just I just love um, that you have inspired us with these brief but very in insightful comments. Let me uh, turn over to Anthony. Hi, all, and thanks for letting me be here. I think Omid captured a lot of what I think we all would say. It was a, it was a big effort, but, you know, in 2014, and I, I, I love that it's here. Like the, the first version of what we built wasn't great, right? It, it didn't go over well. And it captures a lot of the reasons in the chapter titles that you mentioned before, right? Like it was data through a fire hose. People weren't used to seeing information, let alone their own laundry, whether it was dirty or clean. And there was this period of, you know, acceptance and grief and anger and frustration. But I think, you know, our first version, and then I don't want to steal any of Kathy's talking points, but you know, it was level or blinds of data. It was just data point, column, column, data, 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 data. And even if the data was perfect, people weren't using it, right? It was a research-based idea for general consumption. And I think, you know, why it flopped and why it needed to improve is that it has to start with engagement, right? People have to consume any data for it to have any value. And if not, you could be really smart with a lot of good information that nobody's going to use and it's, and it's worthless. So I think, you know, we had to be bold and Vaughn, I think you move the needle. I think if anybody comes in now, you know, it, they don't have to go through FERPA. They don't have to go through all the scary words, legal ramifications and all those things. Now it's moving and now people are comfortable and people now have a baseline that they can improve off of. I think, you know, this is that move that we had to do. So could it have been better? Absolutely. Did it have to fail? I, I kind of think so, because, you know, literally, I, I, I think we still have screenshots, but it was a tool. No, it wasn't even a tool. It was a thing that was on a web page with information. But, you know, the process that Kathy and team, my team, or me to help us lead was, you know, getting feedback, getting people information at a high level at, at a data point where they can digest one thing. And they say, oh, enrollments look like this. Okay. Let me see a little bit more. Let me take another step in. Okay, I'm a little bit more comfortable now. I, I see it. Let me take another step in and another step in. And then you get down to this bottom level. And it's just, you know, it's what every company needs to do, right? We need to free the data, but we need to make it actionable. We need to make it something that they can move the needle from. And then we also need to make sure that things were defined properly from the start. That way, when people use that information, they're using it for the right piece, right? I'm sure everybody's seen that before where people talk about a data point and they talk about it one way, somebody thinks it's another thing and then things get out of whack. 
But, you know, it was a lot of hard work that wouldn't have been able to get done if you weren't bold and got a lot of pushback. But, you know, once that happened, I think it's going to, you know, it's, it's here to stay. And I'm excited to be a part of that original build out of it. Uh, so appreciative, Anthony, of all the work that you had done. Um, uh, just a rapid prototype. I mean, we we had to fail and we failed fast on version 1.0 and that was okay because it got redesigned in version 2.0. Uh, as I wrote in the book, you know, Mikey liked it. And so we were able to scale adoption. Uh, with that, let me turn it over to Kathy Booth. Thank you. I'm so glad to follow up on Omi and Anthony's comments um, because Vaughn had a vision that I think that we didn't have in our minds when we started building the launch board. So we were so focused on what it was going to take to get access to the data and present it in a way that made it easy to use. But Vaughn said to me afterwards, well, what, what are we going to do to help people actually do something with this information? And we put out this campaign that we called Find It, Understand It, Use It because we realized that the first thing is people had to even know what was there. Then we had to build their data literacy so that they would understand what they were seeing. But the hardest part was figuring out what to do with the information once you actually could see it. So I was really glad Vaughn told the story about uh, a session that I did in San Diego. So I was working with this group of really dedicated practitioners and we started out looking at the information that they were more used to seeing. Like they were doing this great job of having a lot of different people in their program and getting them to completion. But when we started looking at the employment and earnings numbers, this totally different story emerged. So there were lots of people getting jobs, but they were not making enough money to even take care of themselves. So they were not making enough money to pay for rent, food, and like healthcare. And so I was watching the practitioners really wrestle with this information because it was so confusing. They were succeeding according to the rubric. They were getting people to completion. But when they looked at the data about earnings, I remember one person just saying, stop. She just like stopped the conversation because people were starting to say, oh, we're educators. What are we supposed to do with employers? And the economy is so much bigger than us at our college. And then they really dug in and they started thinking about, well, what do we have control over? And are there ways that we could tweak what we offer or the way we help students get to employment that would change these outcomes? And I think that's exactly what we need to be doing right now because there are lots of jobs out there, but a lot of them are not good jobs. They are those low paying jobs with no career opportunities. And what Vaughn is describing in this book is how you begin to scaffold so that people can get to jobs that are both what we need to help our communities rebuild, but also give people agency to have the kind of lives they want to live. And that's just so important right now. So thank you, Ron. Thank you, Kathy. And, and also, uh, your philosophy is reflected even in the name of the launch board. It wasn't some dashboard that was like static and you can discard, but it was a launch board to launch conversation, as you explain. And those that's when the insights come. And vote. Hello, everyone. Um, you know, Vaughn, you asked me to pick one word to maybe what I would Google in order to find your book and its transformation. And I think that if I can pinpoint one thing about you is that you are a transformation agent. Um, and this book, as well as the, your body of work really represents that. I love the entire storyline within chapter nine. Um, I couldn't pinpoint one story to represent. And it's really because in order to measure what counts, to expunge bad data, to make data agile, 
actionable and equitable, you must modernize data infrastructure and data services. And within Alvarez and Marcel and our education practice, our mission is to transform the education ecosystem and data infrastructure and service modernization is just one aspect of that. And through the work that we did with California Community College's Chancellor's Office and my um, opportunity to work with you and Omid and Kathy and Anthony, as well as other state level agencies and coordinating boards, we've been able to develop um, a repeatable reference architecture based on modern patterns that are used. And that's exactly um, as we look at the, the example of California Community Colleges, that's really the, the basis of that is, is you know, through the lens of institution researchers and advocacy groups and, and the consumers and the contributors of data is to really create that architecture that's gonna be flexible and agile. And what this means collectively, which I'm really excited about, um, is that we are at a critical juncture of unlocking P20W data state by state. And that is really going to enable um, the reimagining of the education to career pathway and the leveling of the workforce supply demand equation. So everything about this book is exciting to me and the work that you've done so far. And it, it absolutely requires strong innovative, willing partnerships. And that's one thing that you've done so brilliantly, Vaughn, is to really bring together the right minds at the right time to push this forward. So congratulations to you on this book. And I'm honored to be here with this group today. Uh, thank you very much, Anne. And I, I'm so glad that you point out the importance of really modernizing digital and data in architecture, because that's so key to agility uh, these days. Now that we've had a chance to dive deep into the data, and as I'm sure all of you got goosebumps about what was achieved, let's go big now, let's go big and talk about the future and future-proofing the workforce. Uh, so Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Vaughn, and congratulations on this incredible piece of work and all of the work that went into it. And actually, Anne, you were highlighting something that I found you're talking about like the willingness and the partnerships and and some of the key words that I found are sort of phrases that really struck me were human infrastructure as well as ecosystem of the willing. Um, and I think both of those are just so representative of everything that has been done by Yvonne um, and that is brought together uh, through all of these incredible partners to achieve things that really wouldn't be achievable otherwise. Now you asked us to think about an insight story or strategy that resonated most with me. And I'm actually going to uh, reference Howard Brodsky, uh, a quote from Howard Brodsky, who will be speaking in just a moment in this chapter where he talks about, and you're speaking to him, Vaughn, about, you know, I think there's a poverty of economics and there's a poverty of hope. And what co-ops do is they address both of these issues. They also give you the scale without losing control and give you the tools you need to compete against any large company in the world. And so I really love this part when you're talking about worker co-ops as a solution for gig workers. You know, at Institute for the Future years back, I participated in an ethnographic research study called Voices of Workable Futures. And we interviewed people who were doing work in sort of the gig economy, the on-demand economy, in areas from, you know, cleaning homes to high level consulting to selling on eBay to just hustling or driving for Lyft and Uber. And really it was incredible how much, you know, we were trying to understand, we see more and more people are going to be 
living lives in this sort of on-demand way? And what are the pieces that are needed for them to really thrive? And it's something that people were really missing was that idea of ownership, or they felt like they were being jerked around by companies that didn't have their best interests at heart, and they didn't know where things were going. And so the idea of being able to have more worker ownership, more people who are in charge of and able to access things like healthcare and make the big decisions about where they want um, their companies to be going, it's huge. And that's something that's really stuck with us. We've been thinking about this at Institute for the Future for quite a while. And Marina Gorbis, who's our executive director and also wrote the foreword to your book, uh, she's launching our Equitable Enterprise Initiative so uh, the Institute for the Future's Equitable Enterprise Initiative is trying to understand how we can do these types of things that you're talking about, Vaughn, to um, boldly experiment, to find new solutions, to create sort of more equitably distributed and worker-centered enterprise models for the future. And now finally, I want to go just back to the idea of poverty of hope, which uh, Howard said in that quote. And that's what we try to do at Institute for the Future. I think it's so important and it's what you're trying to do, right, Vaughn? You're creating not just this idea of let's be realistic about what's changing around us, but then also saying, but we need to be able to think big and we need to be able to bring together all of these different pieces from all different parts of ecosystems together who might not work together on a normal basis to create these visions of hope that we're thinking about, to not just say it's doomed or these people never work together and they never speak or play nice. Let's just go in and trust each other and get excited and try to create and create these visions of hope out there for the future of the workforce. So those are some of the things that stood out to me. I think it was just such a, a powerful chapter about where do we need to continue to hold on to hope to move forward next. Thank you so much, Sarah. And uh, as you can see, uh, every time you touch the Institute for the Future and the individuals associated with Institute for the Future, um, it inspires creative thinking, like uh, gives you space to think about possibilities beyond what you originally considered. So thank you and keep doing that, Sarah. Uh, Howard, I, I, I think you got a really good introduction from Sarah. Vaughn, thank you very much. And Sarah, thank you for your insight. I, I obviously agree so much more than there is the economy and, and hope, and they're tied in this poverty of both. And if they're not aligned, um, you have a, a workforce that just um, is drifting. And, and I think, Vaughn, first of all, I think your book is so relevant in today's world and so, so incredibly important that um, I think the part that resonated most with me was you said the real affliction in America is suffering not just from income inequality, but asset inequality. And I think that is so true today. You know, the gig workers, not only don't they have assets of benefits, but they have no ownership. And therefore, you know, 10 years, 15 years, they don't have retirement benefits, but, and they have no ownership, they have no control, they have no voice. And I think co-ops are the one answer, and I call it, it's really shared ownership model. I think so often cooperatives are misunderstood. Cooperatives are really a shared ownership business model. And if I look at part of our economy, a big part of our economy, I call it the extraction economy. The extraction economy is when one piece is taking an unfair piece for what they're doing. And if you look at, there are so many sectors where that fits, the home care industry, 
agencies get $35 an hour and the care worker gets 15. All they're doing is placing. Frankly, they're not training, they're placing. Um, you take security business. The security business where guards are standing outside a bank with, with usually without a gun or inside of Walmart or inside anywhere else, they are getting paid 30 to $45 an hour, the company. And the workers generally across America are making minimum wage, under $10 an hour. That is the extraction. They are providing almost no services and taking all of the money out. Uh, and there are so many cases that amount to millions, millions of people. I think the key is not getting people from 13 to $15 an hour, because frankly, at $15 an hour, you can't live. It's getting people that are actually doing the same job from $15 an hour to $30 an hour, where they have control of their own life, they have benefits, and they have ownership. And I think what we have to do is invest in changing the structure. Training is one part, but if you actually change the structure so these people could set up their own ownership structure, they're doing all the work. The third parties are only making placement. And so I think there's an enormous opportunity that literally probably affects about 15 to 20 million Americans where you don't have to do anything major, but it needs an investment in America. I always think that people need subsidies. They don't want subsidies. Yes, they need them. And we should give people that can't afford or do not have uh, need food stamps or income subsidy, but that doesn't change their structure in life. You know, one of the reasons people have not come back from the pandemic to work is they realize that they wanted a better life. They don't want to go back to what they have. And so a lot of people out of the workplace trying to understand how they can go back to a better world than they've been. And I believe shared ownership structure is that better world. And if we invest in having them have ownership, they have control, they have hope, and they have assets, and they have income equality and opportunity. So I think there's so many ways and so many paths that we have to be aware of. We're living in a country that has the greatest inequality of any advanced nation in the world. And it's only getting worse. You know, within the last 20 years, 90% of all the wealth has gone to the top 1%. We need to change that. And we need to change the very structure of what we're doing. And as I said, I think in most cases, it's not people that actually need more equipment. You don't have to build infrastructure. We need to invest in a new way that they're going to change their lives. So I think what you're talking about, Vaughn, in your book is so critical for the future of our world, America and the world, actually, to make a better life for everybody and have it a more quality, sustainability and opportunity. Thank you, Howard, for putting out the caution that we don't have to grow the extraction economy in our future. And so, Dave, what do you think about that? Well, I agree with Howard. <laughs> Just to put a fine point on it. That, that's actually a serious answer. I do agree with Howard. And I think, you know, you can become cynical and it's easy to become cynical. And, you know, we have enormous and growing inequality of every variety uh, in the United States. We have income inequality, we have asset inequality, we have healthcare outcome inequality, you know, pick your metric and the outcomes that we get are 
fundamentally skewed and the trend lines are are heading in the wrong direction, not the right direction as, as the gap continues to grow. And as somebody who spends uh, their time, you know, working, uh, you know, I work for a, a labor union, we're a healthcare workers organization. As Vaughn said, we have, you know, about 100,000 members across the state of California. And I won't, you know, repeat kind of the tale of woe that is the story of the American labor movement over the last 50 to 75 years, but we're an institution that's in decline. We're an institution that is not set up to meet the moment or in Vaughn's phrase to operate at the speed of need, let alone business. And, and hopefully our organization, we're trying to, you know, solve the problems that Howard and Sarah and Vaughn have articulated, um, which is how do we build new organizations and how do we build new combinations of organizations so that we do our part to reverse you know, some of the trends and some of the outcomes that we're seeing. So we are a union. Our fundamental mechanism that we engage in is collective bargaining. But in the last few years, we've been using our collective bargaining process to try to uh, create the resources to own the front end of the worker production pipeline in the healthcare industry. And so along with Vaughn and others on this call, we created Futuro Health, and we've, you know, secured about $150 million of investments through collective bargaining to help train the emerging healthcare workforce. Um, we think of ourselves as a community of healthcare workers, starting with our 100,000 members, but if you think about their, their households, we're talking about half a million people. Um, and many of those folks are interested in having a different sort of opportunity and to get trained in a different way, both in terms of competency-based you know, skills acquisition, but also in terms of having a different career path that's tied to a community of peers. And so we've also created a co-op. Um, we've created a healthcare workers co-op called Allied Up. We're starting to place people allied up itself is a unionized co-op represented by our organization but we're thinking about how to return that gap the $15 that the security worker or the home care worker is getting you know versus the billable rate which is 35 40 45 dollars an hour and how do we invest that back in the workforce and so we're at the front end of that all of that is a, a way to say that you know, it's not enough to have an idea. You have to actually build organizations and build institutions um, and get out there and give people a different set of opportunities. And so, you know, we believe also that um, collective bargaining is one piece of what's needed, but it's not big enough. You know, there's only about 10 or 11% of American workers are in unions inequality of all forms is rising and we have to build institutions and organizations at a scale that meet the scale of the problem and and frankly collective bargaining i don't think is is offering that solution i think co-ops can be scaled in a way that traditional unionism can't i think there are other forms of organizations that can be scaled and i think you know one of the the values and the contributions that Vaughn has made with her book is to get us all to 
you know, try to rethink what we're up to. But, you know, we all operate in a country and in a society with a workforce of 160 million people. Um, and I appreciate, you know, Howard quantifying, thinking about what's the scale of the opportunity. There are easily 20 million people out there that can be put into something that I would call worker organizations, whether those are unions, whether those are co-ops, whether they take some other form, but they offer people a fundamentally different value proposition to use a, a term that the business world likes to use. And the book and this conversation can hopefully spur imagination, but what we really have to do is we have to create a new set of organizations and institutions we have a target rich environment out there. There is no shortage of problems to take on. And, and hopefully this is part of, you know, an ongoing conversation that really gets us all to think about how do we do something different. And I would just add, you know, there's the speed of business, there's the speed of need, and then there's the scale of what is necessary. And we also have to deal with the question of scale. And I think we've been falling way, way short on that. So those are my thoughts. And thank you, Vaughn, for the invitation. Thank you so much, Dave, for really, you know, putting attention to this question of what is the type of worker organization that can operate at the scale and the magnitude of the numbers that, that you know, we highlighted at the beginning of this session. And then we're going to turn over to Lenny. Uh, Lenny, you have the hardest uh, role, which is to do the wrap up here. Thank you, Vaughn. And, and uh, happy to try and do that. It's always a challenge to follow my friend Dave Reagan, who I think of as not only the most provocative, but the most innovative leader from organized labor, who's really putting his action behind his words and trying to make a difference at scale for the issues that you surface. Um, as I was searching for this book on uh, Amazon and Google, um, I did the normal things that you might do like workforce solutions books and it showed up at the top of the list. Um, but what I really wanted to search for is the real rarity of books that intersect policy and business, which is insightful, practical, and readable. The number of books that actually combine those things are extraordinarily limited. Most books have interesting titles because that's what publishers come up with that really don't have any insight in them. And if they do, it's theoretical and not anything that's remotely practical or has any early stage evidence that can actually work. And if they have those two things, they're completely unreadable. Well, fortunately, this book is all of those. It's insightful. It really lays out clearly the nature of what the challenge we're facing. It's very practical. And that's because Vaughn and the other colleagues that are on this call and who have been part of the construction of Vaughn's experience actually have really done these things. It's not a theoretical conversation. It's actually an experience-based one. And then I did not realize you were as good a writer as you are. It's embedded with your voice and your stories in a way that makes this real and interesting, not, not just something that, that you can read and learn from. So I, I really encourage this as a roadmap to how we can actually make a difference on the challenges that Dave suggested. And as Vaughn outlines in this book, and as we tried to surface through the Future of Work Commission with some great support from Institute for the Future, that even before COVID, we are in a system that needs some dramatic change if we're going to meet the nature of the challenges that, that Dave outlined and you talked in the beginning of this, Vaughn, about the challenges that we're facing. Um, since COVID, uh, college-educated workers have recovered and have had more jobs now than they had before COVID. 
those without college education are still four and a half million jobs short of what they were before COVID, and Black women are the most disadvantaged in this environment. Um, as Albert Einstein famously once said, uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. We cannot do that. And I'm inspired by this book. I'm particularly inspired by the examples in chapter 10, um, which I know a little bit about and been involved in the periphery of some of them. But I love your quote that unsettled times serve as good moments for experiments that have proven successful can be taken to scale and reinforced by public policies. And I think all of those elements are essential and outlined in the pathway that you describe in the book, that this is an unsettled time. It was before COVID and COVID just put a punctuation mark in that. And there are examples of experiments that are making a very interesting difference. And the sets of ones that you outline in the book, work at Futuro Health, the co-op that Dave described are good examples of that. And we really do need to take them to scale and we need to get our public policies, our data, our funds, our collective understanding of what's possible and our aspiration to really make this work aligned with those. So uh, Vaughn, it's a, a pleasure to be part of this and uh, thank you for writing this great book. Thank you so much, Lenny, um, for creating the urgency for us to act um, and to experiment. Uh, with that, let me uh, begin. The closeout of our process is all about uh, asking for your help to spread the word. You know, we know the big numbers, the big challenges that all of the speakers have talked through, and there are proven solutions and proven strategies. So um, please help us get the word out that they exist and so that people can put them to use and that collectively we can rise to the challenge of the moment. Uh, we've had some uh, good uh, momentum so far with this book appearing on a number of bestseller and hot new release uh, lists. And so uh, ask for your help in getting the word out. With that, I would really like to one more time express my appreciation to all my friends and colleagues who came here today to join me in this celebratory moment. It's so special to me that you were able to share your thoughts on this book because you have been part of my journey. Um, and so I just wanted to say thank you to all of my guests, friends and colleagues here. And I also want to expand my appreciation to everyone who's in the audience and hope you got a bit of insight from this session. So thank you, everyone, and have a good day. Thanks for checking out this episode of the Workforce Rx podcast. We hope you'll head to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or other book retailers to purchase your copy of Workforce Rx, Agile and Inclusive Strategies for Employers, Educators, and Workers in Unsettled Times. Proceeds benefit the nonprofit mission of Futuro Health. And we hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. Mm -hmm.